Hi, everyone. It is five o'clock, and uh, you guys do not have to listen to me run around frantically always 10 minutes before being like, ah, I forgot everything. Well, I guess you did now. Anyways, minus all of my crazy technical stuff that is stressful, I'm super happy to be back on air for another episode of The Living World. Uh, it's now week five, which basically means deadlines are insane and um, we're all getting very busy. I know I am. I mean, I'm pretty busy this week, but the next week I've got four labs on four different days. Four. Like, what is biology trying to do to me? I, I really don't know. I don't think anyone knows. But for all of you uh, non-bio people, yeah, that's what we're dealing with right now. So many labs. And an eight-hour lab on Thursday. You know, it's, it's fine. <laughs> Anyways, back to the show and not about all my academic stress. So... Uh, hi to all of you guys who are tuning in to hear me live right now. Um, I'm I'm happy to have you all. Super happy. Love having a nice little loyal cohort of listeners every week. At least I hope that's what's going on here. <laughs> it's not just me. Anyways, moving on. I'm sure you all are wondering, Julia, what school are you going to talk about this week? And yeah, um... I will be actually talking about research from Michigan State University. So yeah, all the way out there in Michigan. And for those of you who don't know where Michigan is, it's um, in the northern part of the U.S., like the Midwest, and uh, the state looks like a glove. Um, there's also a few little uh, like t-shirts you can go buy that they have Michigan look like a fire with smoke coming off of it. Because the main part of the state looks like a glove or a hand, and then the other part is the UP, Upper Peninsula, and it's kind of just, you know, like a random swatch of land that's connected to Canada that people think looks like smoke. But anyways, yes, Michigan State University, it's located in Lansing, Michigan, and the reason I know this is because I actually visited, I think when I was a sophomore or junior in high school, yes, because my grandparents live in Michigan. So, uh... I will say, nice school. They're very big into agriculture for some reason, and they're very well known for it. So a lot of my stuff will be um, plant related today, which I'm sure all of you guys who love plants are like, woohoo, yay, Julia, plants. Thank you for fulfilling every need and joy in our lives with your show today about plants. Yes, I know. It's a fun time, isn't it? It's such a fun time. Okay. Moving on, uh, the first study I'll be looking at from MSU, a.k.a. Michigan State University, because they love abbreviations, is a uh, study that was published uh, just, uh, just this past month in January, on January 4th of this year, which is not so that it's already the middle of February. Anyways, this study from MSU was looking at uh, this specific type of grass called switchgrass, specifically for use in biofuels, because this is a grass that is currently being used in the biofuel uh, production industry. So what is switchgrass? Because it makes a really, it has a really fun name, but what is it? I mean, none of us know. None of us know. I definitely don't know. So I will now elaborate for all you guys on what switchgrass is. So switchgrass, a.k.a. Uh, tall 
Panic grass? Ooh, <laughs> what are they panicking about? I don't know. It's also called tall prairie grass, wild red top, thatch grass, and it has a bunch of other names. And uh, this is one of the main species of grasses in uh, the North American tall grass uh, prairie. And the prairies in uh, the, in North America, just for reference, they run out. They run through a lot of Canada and the uh, midwestern. Uh, to northern parts of the U.S., so they're very prevalent. And uh, these the switchgrass it ran it runs as I said across the prairies, ranging from uh, southern Canada, actually down to Mexico. I had that wrong there. It runs down to Mexico. So southern Canada, you might be wondering how south in Canada. Well, as south as 55 degrees north. Ooh, 55 degrees north latitude, crazy. But yes, these prairies, they run all through Canada, the U.S., and to Mexico with different grasses, switchgrass being, being one of them. And switchgrass can also be found in uh, like remnants of prairies, also in pastures. So say if you have cows, possibly, I don't know if it would be around with cows, maybe they would eat it. I don't know. If I was a cow, I would eat switchgrass. I mean... It'd be healthy, right? I don't know. I don't know enough about cow biology to really speculate on if that's true. But, you know, it would be fun. Anyways, uh, besides being found in pastures, switchgrass can also be found alongside roads and even in specific types of marshlands, which is nutso. Marshes. Wow. Anyways... Uh, if you are a keen gardener and you would like to grow switchgrass, uh, this species um, is is very interesting. As year-round, these plants, they remain upright and strong and supple. So they're pretty interesting there. And switchgrass has also been used for uh, soil conservation to help prevent land erosion for uh forage and hay for actually cattle. So yes, if I was a cow, I could eat switchgrass. Yes, for cattle, switchgrass is being used as food. And it's also being used as a biofuel, which is the main focus of this specific study that I'm going to get into in a little bit. Biofuels, yes. It's being exploited right now by researchers. So keep this in mind as I continue to give the background about switchgrass and all the different varieties and yada, yada, yada. I will be coming back to this in probably five minutes. Just keep this in mind. Switchgrass, biofuels, big field. Woo. Anyways, for more information on switchgrass uh, growing generally and in gardens, because it's a gardening plant. I wouldn't know that. I don't garden. But apparently, switchgrass, um, it, it typically blooms in the summer, which, you know, that's typical. Plants in the summer uh, bloom in the summer, and summer meaning uh, summer in the northern hemisphere, so June, July, August, etc. We all know. Everyone kind of knows. But yes, blooms in the summer, and uh, it has these... It says here it has these pink flowers and they're like little spikes. And if you look up a picture of uh, switchgrass when it blossoms, it does have these pokey little flower dudes. Um, and like some flowers, they the little um, the little stamens and stigmas and stuff, they're like apparently burgundy colored, and they look really pretty. Of course, they're really small because it's a grass, so keep that in mind. 
But um, the flowers sometimes are used in uh, dried flower arrangements. And if you're curious about uh, growing switchgrass for yourself, it does produce seeds. But these seeds are really small. They're like an eighth of an inch. Now, I don't know what that is in millimeters. I apologize for literally everyone else here who is not American or who doesn't use customary weird U.S. measurements. I don't know the conversion, but an eighth of an inch isn't that big. So the seeds aren't that big. So if again, if you're looking at growing switchgrass in your garden, just 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 keep in mind it has really small seeds. So yes. Now if uh, you have riper seeds, like in the autumn or something, they might turn like a goldeny brown color, which that that just sounds like a nice color, you know, golden brown, like ah, oh, so soothing, so satisfying, so autumn. <laughs> Now, again, how do you best grow switchgrass? Like, how? I don't know. A- apparently, it grows the best in full sun with moist soil. It's adaptable to a wide range of soil and weather conditions, but it doesn't really like, like, very clay-rich soils. So just keep that in mind. Now, I just said that it grows best in full sun, but it's also able to tolerate partial shade. Though keep in mind, if you're growing it, you don't want to give it too much shade because then it will like flop. <laughs> it literally calls it, it flops too much. Yeah, if it's in too much shade, it flops over. So so keep that in mind with your switchgrass. Don't put it in too much shade or it will go flop. Now how much? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but it will flop. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> if you want nice, straight, standing upright, stable switchgrass, keep it in the sunlight. And um, switchgrass, while also being resistant to many different types of soils, is also apparently drought resistant, and it grows pretty well in high temperatures. And yes, of course, growing well in high temperatures is really important because, yeah, it it keeps getting wetter, uh, sorry, it keeps getting hotter and hotter in the Midwest, in like, Canada, U.S., etc. We all know climate change, everything. Summer is just getting super hot. So it's great that we have a plant here, switchgrass, that grows well in high temperatures. It really is. <clears throat> and uh, as well as the ideal uh, soil uh, conditions, there are many different types of switchgrass uh, cultivars that you can buy. Yes, cultivars is a fancy name for saying I... I believe like a different type of variety of a specific plant it's used a lot in plant biology it was mentioned again when i was in finland i took a plant biology class they kept saying cultivar 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 i was like okay sure i totally know what a cultivar means but i i don't if you guys are curious you know i've got your basic definition here but if you're curious again go look it up google knows all google i swear knows more than me so just keep that in mind Anyways, if you're curious about growing your own switchgrass, um, some of the common cultivars you can buy, at least according to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is where I got a lot of this info from, actually, uh, there are many different cultivars. You've got Blue Tower, Cloud Nine, Dallas Blues, Heavy Metal, Dirt or Dirt, North Wind, Prairie Fire, Prairie Sky. There's a difference there. Prairie Fire and Prairie Sky are different. And there's also Shenandoah. That's a pretty name. And there's also the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, which, if you haven't been, best place ever. They have a bunch of rocks. The rocks are big. They're covered in moss. They're really cool. But apparently the Shenandoah variety also is really red. 
and and I looked at pictures of it. It looks so pretty. Like that would be great for the fall. And I love I love fall, aka autumn or whatever. It's my favorite season. Then I know a lot of other people do. Uh, so yeah, if you guys are curious, especially want a really good fall variety of switchgrass, get Shenandoah cultivar. Ooh ooh ooh, very fun. <laughs> but yeah, all these names like kind of sound like you know like a, a weird like band name. Like yeah. Welcome, everyone. We're band Dallas Blues. And you know where we got our name inspiration? Switchgrass. You know, that'd be a really funny anecdote if any of you guys decided to start, like, a band and you had that kind of name. It'd be like, oh, I wasn't inspired by my parents or my, sis- or my sister or my siblings or anything. I was inspired by Switchgrass because I love it so much. Yeah. Fun times. Anyways. So those are the last of the gardening tips about switchgrass. So for any of you guys who want to possibly start a garden and grow all of the different cultivars, go ahead. Now, casting back to the basis of the study around switchgrass. No, not just switchgrass for an hour. That that would be a lot. <laughs> back to the study. I mentioned before that you guys should keep in mind that switchgrass is used uh, is is very big right now in terms of uh, biofuels. So yes. That was the basis of this study. Uh, now, like, what are biofuels? Yeah, the biofuels, at least in this sense, are you basically take a plant and you turn it into fuel. So a, a really common example is ethanol in gas. Now, I don't know how big of a thing ethanol is over here, but at least in the U.S., um, ethanol is really common and they make it out of corn. But apparently you can also make it out of switchgrass. Now, how do you make biofuel out of switchgrass? I don't know. And that is more in depth than what I'll be covering. But uh, just to keep in mind for all you guys and everyone, that's just like the premise of this study. So these researchers from uh, MSU, Michigan State University and Lansing, yada, yada, yada. They actually, uh, in this study, they, they found that switchgrass... Uh, actually stops photosynthesizing in the peak of summer. Uh, you're like, okay, why? Why does why why is uh, stopping photosynthesis like bad? Because it, it's bad for biofuels. The plant clearly doesn't die because if it stopped photosynthesizing in the summer, and the plant couldn't survive because of this, we wouldn't have switchgrass now. It probably would have died off, and then we would have gotten some other species arising via evolution or whatever, and it it would have come up that way. But no. So it's a natural process that switchgrass undergoes. It stops photosynthesizing in the peak of summer. And for biofuel production, this is bad. Photosynthesis, as a reminder, you take water, carbon dioxide, and sunlight, and you make sugars and oxygen. So it's a way of fixing energy and water into a uh, sustainable food source, aka glucose, aka sugar. Yeah, so just a review there for you guys. If you're like, oh crud, photosynthesis, I don't remember what it means. (laughs) There's your review. Okay, anyways. So it was found uh, by these researchers that switchgrass stops photosynthesizing in the summer. And then the the next question they asked was why? Because no one, no one knew, you know, no, nobody knew why does switchgrass stop photosynthesizing in the summer. So these researchers they asked that question, and uh, the 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 reason why this is an issue for biofuel production, uh, just just as a side, as an aside here, and why this matters for for biofuel production is producing biofuels depends on the amount of biomass you have, and biomass uh, is 
based on the amount of physical growth that you get in a plant. So an analogy of this, if you guys are still being like, I don't get biomass production in plants. What do you mean, Julia? Well, an analogy is think of a potato, you know, good old common potato. And uh, one year you're growing your potato plants. And by the end of the growing season, you get a one pound potato. This is point something something in kilograms. I don't know. It's some conversion where I think a pound is more than a kilogram or something. But yeah, so you, one year you're growing a potato, you get a one pound potato. And then uh, you grow your potato crop again. And due to a variety of factors and circumstances, you're able to grow a crop that produces a two pound potato. So that's a big difference in potato size. And that implies a big difference in biomass production. So for biofuels, to put this into context, uh, for biofuel production, you'd want to use the crop that produced the two-pound potato compared to the one-pound potato because this would provide you more yield in terms of plant mass that you can use to break down to make biofuels such as ethanol. I mean, you probably wouldn't use the potato in this sense because we eat them, uh, but the other parts of the potato plant or another plant that's not being used for food you'd use that for biofuels. So yes, a uh, key reminder here in terms of biofuel production, the bigger the plant, the more biomass you get produced, the more biofuels you can create. And this is, this is better. You want, we want more biofuels, yes? It's renewable energy. We, we definitely want that. Okay, so moving on, now that you guys know a little bit more about biomass, uh, what did these researchers find when they, then, they were, then they were trying to figure out the reason why switchgrass uh, decides to stop photosynthesizing in the middle of summer. These researchers, they found actually that the explanation for the limitation of the photosynthesis in the growth of these uh, switchgrass plants is due to their rhizo, ry rhizomes, 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 fancy word there with an R and a Z. <laughs> but what are these uh, ry rhizomes, rhizomes? Uh, they are actually uh, small knobby structures that uh, live under that are present underground in uh, plant roots. And if you've ever um, cut or shred ginger, actually ginger is a type of rhizome, rhizosome. And yeah, legit, I had no idea that was what ginger was. I just know ginger as uh, the food that I don't really like a whole ton. But you know, uh, to each his own. <laughs> Anyways. Besides being a uh, cool little uh, growth in terms of plant biology, rhizomes are really important for plants because they store food for the plant in, in the form of starch to help the plants survive winter. And starch is made up of these sugars that are produced from photosynthesis. So once uh, be you can't have an unlimited supply of rhizomes, they can fill up, they can run out of room. So in terms of switchgrass, uh, once its rhizomes are full of starch, this signals the plant to stop making sugars, and it thus triggers the plant to stop photosynthesizing. So this is why it stops photosynthesizing in the summer. So yeah, uh, and, and an example, if you guys are still a bit confused on this, is uh, in terms of like examples, what I found from the news release about this paper is they give an example of, uh, say you're putting money into a bank. And then you keep putting money into this, into your bank account day in, day out. You put in like five bucks, five pounds, five euros, five whatever. 
and you keep putting it in day in, day out. And then one day you get a call from your banker, and your banker's like, hey, so you ran out of room in your bank, and you're like, oh, crud. Well, the reason you ran out of room is, of course, you don't have room in your bank account anymore. And this applies back to Switchgrass again. You think the bank, in this sense, is the rhizome, and the money you're putting in is sugars from photosynthesis. So if you're a Switchgrass here, you uh, your bank's basically like, yeah, dude, you filled up your rhizomes with so much sugar from photosynthesizing that you don't need to do it anymore. So you could just, you know, take a take a vacation. You could take a break, have a fun time. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a fun analogy about rhizomes and why switchgrass stops photosynthesizing. So yeah, that was a pretty cool study. And uh, some of the future outlooks now that these researchers figured out why switchgrass stops uh, stops photosynthesizing in the summer is now they want to find like a workaround so that they can manipulate and maneuver uh, switchgrass into being able to produce more biomass, even when naturally it, it doesn't. So that's that's some of the future outlooks for this specific study, is trying to make uh, switchgrass more... Uh, biologically efficient and producing more biomass for making more biofuel. So pretty cool study there. And all of you guys who want to grow switchgrass, go right ahead and grow all of those fun cultivars. Okay, moving on to a slightly less plant-related topic, though I will be covering another plant topic for the next article on today's episode. But just to get off topic for a tad wee bit, Another study from MSU, this one's actually looking at frogs. Yes, frogs. And uh, yes, I'm not, looking at, I'm not looking at ants this week. I'm not looking at ants. So yes, you guys rejoice. Rejoice, I'm looking at frogs. I know, frogs, so fun, right? They kind of freak me out a little bit. But they're cool, they're cool. Frogs are cool. So specifically, I am looking at the harlequin uh, frogs and a new study that was published on their recent comeback into the environment and the ecosystem. Now, why am I talking about frogs all of a sudden? Why, 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 why? <laughs> why? Yeah, you guys are like, Julia, you're just talking about frogs again. I'm like, yeah, no, but there's a reason. Okay, so, drum roll. Da -da 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 -da. Reason that I'm talking about all these frogs is they're actually in the midst of an apocalypse these frogs are, yes, they're in the midst of a fungal apocalypse, specifically a fungus called uh, BD or Batra, Bat, Bat, Batra, Cho, Cho, Chytrium dendrobatidis. I can't say that, God. But it's, it's abbreviated as BD, the specific fungus. And uh, for those of you who are into current modern pop culture, uh, this frog fungal apocalypse is kind of similar to this new TV show that's like uh, that's out right now. That's in the process of all the episodes being released right now on I think it's on like what HBO. Yeah, uh, called The Last of Us. I've never I haven't watched it. Just a side note, but it's apparently a TV show that's based off of a video game, and they have really good character to video game character like. Uh, similarities or whatnot i've seen things about it it seems mildly interesting but uh, the basis is is it there's a fungal apocalypse that's going on where um it's, it's fictional of course it's, this is not actually happening it's fictional but uh there was this fungal apocalypse and these people they were killed off by uh cordyceps fungus 
And uh, you guys might have heard of cordyceps. It's a mind-controlling fungus, and it's really creepy. Look up a video. It literally literally grows stalks out of the heads of insects. It's, like, creepy as heck. Like, I don't want that. But, yeah, that's what that... That's what that uh, TV show slash video game uh, Last of Us is based off of is a, is a fungus and op- an apocalypse and mind control and everything. So if you guys are interested in a um, <laughs> a show that's loosely based on some cool science, maybe check that out. But also uh, continue to hear about this frog fungi fungus apocalypse. Woo. Okay. So I mentioned BD a.k.a. really complicated, long scientific name fungus that I will not try to say again because I'll butcher it. Uh, what is this BD fungus? Wh- where did it come from? What's the big deal? Why Why do we need to care about it? What, what's the big deal? So I mentioned it's caused a fungal apocalypse in frogs. Now, it, the big thing with this is it is it's a, it's a really bad fungus for frogs. It kills frogs and other amphibians by legit eating away at their skin and triggering heart attacks it's it's so deadly on frogs because they have really porous skin which is what they use to breathe through and drink water with and what bd specifically does is it it's able to unspool unwind aka denature the proteins of the skin in these amphibians in these frogs and then it results in a really big mess of like the proteins and their amino acids are all like screwed up all over the place, everything. And as this fungus continually uh, infects these animals and it gets worse and worse, they grow very lethargic. All these frogs, they grow so tired because their skin is basically getting shredded and it ends with them dying because of heart attacks and heart failure. And this happens in a couple of weeks, like legit, like, Oh, it makes me happy for a second. I'm not a frog because I I really don't want BD, man. It sounds horrible. Like your shred, your your skin gets shredded to heck, and then you die because of a heart attack. It's just oh, it just sounds horrible. Gosh, but yeah, and this this outbreak of BD is so bad. These die-offs have begun. The die-offs they began in the 1980s. So BD's been around for a while actually. And the die-offs are so bad that, example, in Panama, between 2008 to 2014, this BD fungus has caused over 40% of the native frogs to die. Like, in six years, because of a fungus, because of a little fungus, you'll lose 40% of the frogs in Panama. Like, what the heck? It's nuts. It's really nuts. But, uh, and there were some other studies that people were like, where did BD come from? There, the, so there were a lot of studies to try and figure out ground zero of this fungus and the origins. And people are saying actually that BD originated in the Korean uh, peninsula around the 1950s. Now, how were they able to track this? They did some gene sequencing uh, and they tracked different mutation rates of BD. And if you guys are curious about this... Um, BD's um, Ground Zero, its origins in the uh, possible Korean War and everything. You can check out the Smithsonian article that I found that I'll be linking in my uh, episode description after this airs. Really interesting stuff. Okay, now that I've covered the fungus, this crazy fungus that kills a bunch of frogs, I'm going to just briefly uh, talk about 
Harlequin frogs specifically. Just so you guys know a little bit more about what they are. <laughs> yeah, because yes, they're a frog, but what kind of frog? What kind of frog? Anyways, Harlequin frogs, they are found in the uh, tropics between Costa Rica to uh, Bolivia. They belong to the specific genus uh, Adelopis, and this describes and includes about uh, 80 species, though probably only about uh, estimates of maybe a little over 30 or so of these excuse me, specific species have been described. And the vast majority of harlequin frog species, they live in forested mountains where rainfall is abundant. So makes sense why, you know, they live in Bolivia, Ecuador, etc. The Andes are there, mountains are there, they live up in high mountainous regions. And most uh, harlequin frogs, they have a very limited range of distribution, so they live in a specific uh, set of areas. Uh, they're active, like, all the time, generally, like during the day and during the night as well. Uh, their size is like kind of small to medium sized. Uh, they range from about 20 to 60 millimeters from the end of their nose to uh, the other end of their bodies. And females are often larger than males. And they also have a different coloring than males. Now, uh, what's causing what's been causing harlequin frog species numbers specifically to decline? Well, of course, the BD fungus. It's real bad. But also uh, habitat destruction and rising temperatures and everything else. So we've lost uh, we've lost a few dozen species of harlequin frogs already, actually. And a lot of uh, these frog species they're listed as endangered, uh, critically endangered, and they have a really high risk of extinction. And uh, just an example, some of these endangered frogs that you guys might have heard of include the Panamanian golden frog, which its scientific name is Adelopis uh, zateki. And this is that Panamanian frog where 40% of them have died because of BD. Uh, there's also a lot of other species too, such as uh, some of the ones that live in Ecuador, uh, such as Adelopis uh, Andinus and Adelopis uh, Nene. <laughs> I know Nene, right? <laughs> Whip, Nene, Woo. No. <laughs> uh, those, those frogs, though, specifically, they're interesting. I looked at a picture. They're, like, blackish green, and their limbs are, like, kind of fat. Like, they've got all this extra fat everywhere. They're, they're kind of interesting. I don't know. So you, but you guys who are into frogs, take a look at uh, Adelopis uh, Nene. <laughs> they, they look pretty intriguing little dudes. Anyways. Uh, why am I talking all about this death and destruction with frogs? I, I, it's actually, it's actually a good story. This, this specific, specific study is, it's a good story. So yes, I'm being a little bit of a Debbie Downer here, but it's not actually a depressing story. I mean, it is a little bit, but it's not like, oh my God, Julia, everything's dead. The world is horrible. It's not that bad. Okay. Just getting into that, getting into the study. Uh, what was the whole premise of it? Who was involved? What was the basis so we had researchers, of course, from Michigan State, uh, but there were uh, also a lot of uh, researchers from Ecuador. Specifically, this study, a lot of the field work was conducted in Ecuador because a lot of these harlequin frogs live there. That'd be so cool to get a job. You know, your job's just go to Ecuador and look at frogs. Oh, yeah, that sounds cool. I'd like to go to Ecuador. I went once when I was like 12 but I don't remember a lot. And we were just in Quito, the capital, and all I really remember, remember was they had McDonald's. <laughs> I know that's not an accurate representation of Ecuador at all, but I would love to go back. And that would, that would be a fun way to go back and look at frogs. Anyways, uh, 
the study involved a lot of researchers from Ecuador, specifically from uh, Universidad Tecnológica Indoamérica, uh, Universidad San Francisco de Quito, a.k.a. USFQ, and also uh, the uh, Jambatu uh, Center for Investigation and Conservation of Amphibians. Now, this, this center actually is really, like, really famous a, a bit. It's, it's really big in the world of cons- conservational biology. It was actually a finalist uh, for the 2023 Indianapolis Prize. And the Indianapolis Prize is, I had no idea about it before, it's this really big prize in conservational biology. Uh, they pick a few finalists and they award each of them like $50,000 or something crazy. Like, it's nuts. I don't know if they have, if this center has won I just know that they were put as a finalist. So, you know, wishing them good luck. And as I mentioned, the frogs and the harlequin frogs in the study, they were located in Ecuador. Uh, so j- just as a side note there, in case you guys don't remember. Uh, so what did this study look at? It was a combination of literature review and fieldwork, but the research team was able to show that through their work, as many as 32 harlequin frog species that were once thought to be extinct are actually still surviving in the wild. So this study actually rediscovered quite a few species of frogs. Like, that's pretty nuts. We thought they all died because of fungus and everything else. But no, 32 of them are still alive. I mean, granted, they're, like, critically endangered and crud and, you know, they're probably not in the entirely best state. But the species are still alive. They haven't gone extinct. It's, it's pretty nuts. And, and it doesn't mean, again, that they fully reco- that they fully recovered from population decline. It's just mean that it just means that these species have been found again in the wild, which is great. It's great. And this is a, particularly great for the harlequin frogs because they've been hit exceptionally hard by uh, this BD fungus. Over the past 40 years, experts believe that almost 80 percent of harlequin frogs have been driven to extinction which is nuts. And 87 species were confirmed to have been missing because of this fungus. Now, because of this study, which was published in uh, December of 2022, this study found, as I said, 32 species that had been rediscovered. And of the 87 species that had been originally thought to have been missing or possibly extinct from uh, this BD fungus, 32 species, that makes for 37%. 37% of these these, uh, harlequin frog species that were thought to have gone missing have been rediscovered over the past 20 years. And it's just nuts. And that's what this study found, is they did a big swath of reading and went out in the field and they looked around and they were like, gotta find these frogs, man. And they found them. They found the frogs. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, so... Yeah, so 32 species found over the last 20 years. And how they were able to confirm this is they did a bunch of uh, genetic tests, genetic testing. And uh, they found that a lot of these harlequin frogs, the reason why they're still around is they were able to persist somehow in the face of these uh, BD fungal infections. And how they did this genetic sampling actually was they took samples of the outside of the frog's skin which is wet, which is like basically a version of frog saliva, I think. 
I'm not an expert on frog biology. I'm not a frog scientist. I know there's a specific word for that. <laughs> I think it's herp herpetologist. I don't know. But I'm not, a I'm not a frog scientist, but they did all these genetic studies, and they found, for some reason, harlequin frogs are able to persist in the face of really deadly fungal infections. So, it's really great. Now, do they know why these frogs are able to persist from all these infections? No. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, you got to do all these genetic reconstruction, make all these trees, make all these phylogenetic trees, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I'll leave that to the uh, to the computational geneticists. <laughs> That's not me. I like the lab. But you know, hey, fun times. Get to go out into the forests and look for frogs. But hey. It's, it is a really great study. It's it's a nice little, like, you know, like one of those hopeful studies where you're like, ah, oh, there's faith in humanity in the world. Yes, there's faith in humanity. We have found these frogs. They're not all dead. They might be close to extinction, but they're not dead. And there's a lot of work we still need to do to protect them and keep them safe from environmental changes and everything and all of that. But it's a really good study. It has a really nice outlook and it's great, you know. It's one of those kinds of studies where you're just like, ah, oh, I feel so much warmer in my heart. I do. I do. Even if it's talking about frogs. But yeah, all of you guys who like frogs, <laughs> have a fun time with that. Okay, uh, before I move on to the next study, for those of you who might be watching this show in your rooms, take a look outside your window. Uh, the sun has been setting for the past, like, uh, 45 minutes. And if you look outside right now, it's really pretty. Yeah, just taking a look out behind me from the this back window here in the Union, there's like really pretty uh, like remnants of orange and purple and everything. So yeah, I found recently the past like few weeks, it the weather's not actually been too horrible, like uh, knock on wood here in St. Andrews. It's really not been horrible, you know? I was expecting all this rain and crud. Nah, it's been really nice. So yeah, if you guys have a minute, if you're listening in, uh, here's my nudge to say, Take me with you, uh, continue to listen, but take a look outside your window and look at the pretty sunsets that surround us because they're very pretty. And also because my show doesn't really talk about the um, science behind the colors of the sky and stuff. Maybe go talk to an astronomer or a physicist or a chemist about that. But yeah, just as a little aside, if you guys want to take a brain break or whatever, or if you just want to keep listening and think about life, Take a look outside. It's really pretty right now. Or take a walk on the beach. Okay, moving on from my little aside about the prettiness of sunsets in nature, I'll be moving on to my uh, last study here that I'll be talking about from uh, Michigan State. And I said I would be moving on to another plant topic. And I am, but I'm also moving on to something that's really cool. Space! Yes, I am talking about space. You guys better get psyched, all of you guys who like space or who haven't really been watching the news in terms of space too much. I mean, I'm not obsessed. I'm not obsessively stalking the news and like seeing what's going on with like SpaceX or whatever. But there's been some cool stuff recently that's gone on in space related to MSU and related to plants. Now, why do I bring this up? Uh... Michigan State was actually one of the universities that was involved on a biological project uh, used in Artemis 1. Artemis 1, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to go a little bit off script here by not talking directly about biology, but it's a big thing. 
this is a it's it's a big thing in terms of space travel and space exploration and everything and it's nuts but uh Again, and any of you guys who are bigger space nerds than me or who are doing physics or astronomy or who pay attention to space stuff more uh, than I do, please correct me. Uh, and also a, a bit of a shout out to uh, Claire in the uh, Earth Sciences Department. She runs the astrobiology module and she is also on one of the uh, ESA uh, advisory boards. Uh, so just a shout out there for any of you guys who are interested in talking to uh, some of the faculty here at St. Andrews who are involved in space. Uh Talk to Claire. She's super nice, knows a lot of stuff, and astrobiology was a cool class last year. ES 1006, for those of you who are curious. Anyways, I've mentioned on and on about this Artemis One program and MSU's involvement. So, what is Artemis One? What's the goal? And what is this thing all about? Because it's not a biology thing, it's a space thing. And it's cool. It's cool. Space is cool. Yeah. Okay. Artemis One. Yeah, so the, it's a bit of a little, the name's a little uh, bit of a moniker here. It's a funny thing. Uh, it's been 50 years since humans were on the moon. And as we all know, uh, or as we all should know, humans first uh, set foot on the moon uh, with the Apollo missions. So the, these were run by NASA, uh, National uh, Association of Space and stuff. I should know, but I don't. NASA, run by NASA in the in the U.S., in, the, in America, in the States. And... Why I say the Artemis program is a, is a moniker here is uh, because Apollo is uh, the god of the sun in, in Greek mythology. And he and Artemis, Artemis, who's the goddess of the moon and the hunt and who's uh, not uh, romantically involved with anyone, they're actually twin siblings. So it's a little bit of a like a little a little uh, fun little uh, joke there with Apollo and Artemis and how they're like sister programs and everything. And it's all cool. But yeah, Artemis program is uh, NASA's next big, and I guess uh, the European Space Agency, ESA's next big foray into space. And the whole goal of this program is to get humans back on the surface of the moon. And specifically, Artemis 1 is phase one of this whole Artemis program. I think it's divided into three or four different stages. And specifically for Artemis 1, the spacecraft, the spacecraft involves uh, this so-called Orion module, which is, I think, from ESA. And uh, this, this module will perform a flyby of the moon using lunar gravity to help it gain speed and propel it around the moon. Uh, it, it's it's going to help it to propel it about 70,000 kilometers beyond the moon, which is almost half a million kilometers away from Earth. And this will be further than any true that than any human has ever traveled. Now I mentioned uh, just a second ago that there's a lot of different Artemis programs. So you've got Artemis One, uh, which is an uncrewed test flight, and this was actually completed on December 11th. So yes, December 11th of this past year, it's already been done. It's nuts. This Artemis program already happened. I mean, part one, but it's it still happened. Now there's Artemis Two, which is in progress. This will be a crewed flight that goes uh, beyond the moon, and it'll take humans the furthest that they've ever been in space. So further than where we've already landed in space, this is where humans will go on Artemis 2. Artemis 3 is the big one. That's where the goal is to try and land people on the moon physically. And what makes it big is this will be the first like space expedition where they're going to land the first female astronaut on the moon and the first uh, astronaut of color on the moon. And this will involve them spending a week 
on the moon performing scientific studies on the moon's surface. And Artemis 3 will be the first manned moon mission uh, where people land on the moon since the last Apollo mission in 1972. And yeah, this is great. We're going to finally get women and more diverse characters, or sorry, diverse uh, people onto the moon. It's it's great. I mean, it really should have happened like a lot longer, a lot a lot of uh, a lot longer ago, but I'm happy at least it's happening now. And besides going back to the moon, uh, the Artemis program is is going to help us also prep for uh, traveling to Mars, which is a lot further away. Uh, and for those of you who are more curious and want to read a nice uh, little. Uh, sci-fi account of a Mars travel, check out uh, The Martian by Andy Andy Wire. They, they also made it into a movie, pretty good movie, uh, 2015 movie starring Matt Damon, because Matt Damon apparently seems to be in everything. They made a pretty good movie starring Matt Damon, uh, and it's about this guy who uh, gets stranded on Mars and has to find his way home. But yeah, it's a good thing we're doing the Artemis program, too, because apparently, from what I've heard, it takes, like, three years or something in space. Spe three years of space travel to get to Mars. So, yeah. It's good we're doing our first prep on the moon. And who knows? Maybe we could build some kind of establishment on the moon. I mean, there's a whole, like, load of ethics and stuff about that I'm not going to get into. I'm sure that there's a bunch of stuff on this about the moon, if it's ethical, if we should be building on the moon or whatnot. I'm not going to get into it, but it's a, it's a cool thing. And, and space travel right now is just, it's getting, it's just getting nuts. It's, it's just crazy. And another aside, uh, my mom actually, she works for uh, Deloitte. I'm sure a lot of you guys know Deloitte from all of their little like uh, ploys to get us to work for them. She actually uh, heads up the, their accounts in the U.S. with the Space Force, which is a newly established branch of the U.S. military that has to do with space. So, uh, hi, Mom. Wanted to give you a shout-out about space and all the fun stuff that's going on. And, yeah. And I also wanted to give a little bit more of a background into how the Artemis One uh, program worked. Because, as I said, this, this uh, module, this, this test, this launch has already been completed. It was completed on December 11th. But what was the basis of this launch? And so I can put into context the study that uh, MSU had that was involved in this. So the steps of the Artemis One program were, of course, number one, you have to launch your payload and your and all of your stuff. I know there's more technical terms for it, but that's just the basis. You got to launch your payload. And the steps for this were they were going to launch the whole rocket, which they call the Space Launch System, the SLS, uh, from the specific pad at Kennedy Space Center, which is in Florida. And I've actually been there. I lived in Florida for a few years when my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, lived in Florida. Got to see... I even got to see a rocket when they were building it. It was so cool. It's so cool. Like, it's insane. If you guys have never seen a rocket launch, it's nuts. So first step was to launch the rocket, SLS, into space. And then there were all these, like, checks from mission control, making sure everything's going okay. They had the uh, the orbits and the directional flight adjusted for the rockets by this fancy thing they call translunar injection by interim cryogenic propulsion, or ICPS, fancy fun times. Then once you get your, uh, your um, payload 
in the right direction and going the right speed. You take your trip over to the moon. Do 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 do, do fly aways, ba 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 ba. And then they did a flyby of the moon using the moon's gravity for a gravity assist. And then they got into a specific uh, orbit, uh, specifically called distant retrograde orbit, which uh, was that really far orbit where they were 70,000 kilometers away from the moon. They got really far away from the Earth, the furthest uh, a, a, a thing has been from the moon, the furthest we've ever been away from the moon. And then we take the payload back, they flew the payload back, and they flew it back uh, for a second flyby of the moon. They did another gravity assist. They got some readings. They got really close within the Earth's surface. And then they came home. And the module re-entered Earth's atmosphere and landed in the Pacific Ocean on uh, December 11th. So that was when that was ended. So how did this launch go? How did the how did the whole Artemis 1 program go? So they were able to get new pictures of the moon's surface. Woohoo! If you look it up, uh, you can see pictures of the uh, Orion capsule uh, and the moon's surface. And then on day 11th of launch, which was back in November, uh, November 26th, the Orion capsule, it broke the record of the farthest distance traveled by a spacecraft designed to carry humans into space. So yes, I forgot to mention, <laughs> of course, uh, the Orion uh Spacecraft is designed for humans. So this was a whole test to get uh, the facts and figures for spaceflight to the moon uh, for humans. And it was unmanned, but they actually had uh, these, they called them moonikins. They had these, like, basically mannequins that were wearing the uh, the spacesuits that the Orion crew for the Artemis program are going to, or will be wearing. And they had a bunch of sensors to sense all of the different um, like things that were going on during flight. So, yeah, I forgot to mention that. The Orion capsule, really big thing, designed for humans. It did all these measurements and everything. And uh, in this mission, the Artemis 1 mission, it was formally called the Exploration Mission 1, and it was uncrewed. And the, the uh, space launch system that I mentioned that they used to get the payload off into air, SLS, it was actually the most powerful rocket ever. Generated 8.8 million pounds of thrust. This is 1.3 million pounds more thrust thrust than the Saturn V rocket, which is insane. And there's a really cool Lego model of the Saturn V rocket. So <laughs> it's fun times. If you guys are into Legos, because I'm into Legos, uh, maybe take a look at that. Okay. And also, as an aside, uh, for those of you who are into um, Charlie Brown comics, they actually put a Snoopy doll into this Orion uh, capsule when they launched it into space. So you can look at you can look it up. There's actually really funny pictures of um, Snoopy in space along with these uh, spacesuit mannequins and everything. So it's pretty cool, and it's the first step for getting humans back to the moon. Now, what was the role? Like, what what did what involvement did MSU have in this? Like I mentioned before, they did some kind of study on plants and stuff, and then I talked about space for a while. But what is what did MSU have? involved in this. They, they, the main uh, researcher they had involved was this plant biologist lady called uh, Federica Brandisi. And uh, the whole premise here was that MSU was sending seeds into space via Artemis 1 to see how their growth is affected. Now, why were these scientists doing this? 
Because if we're going to do long-distance travel in space to Mars, and if the possibility of a return trip from Mars isn't possible, we're going to need to be able to grow food in space. Because, yeah, if you have no food, you starve, and then you die. And if you have no food, it's just really sad. Your stomach's just growling at you all the time. But yeah, the more bigger thing is if you don't have food in space, you die. <laughs> if you don't have a lot of things in space, you die. But food is a big thing. And as hence the whole premise of why MSU was involved. So, what did MSU send up via Artemis 1 into space? What, what, did, what were they studying? They sent specifically seeds of uh, Arapsis, Arabidopsis thaliana, 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 which is known as Thalecrus. And it's actually the most popular plant model species that's used today. Why? Because it has a really small genome. Uh, it's really easy to genetically manipulate, and you can uh, transform the cells via a method called floral dip, which I won't get into, but uh, this plant was really big in my uh, plant molecular biology class that I took at Helsinki. They mentioned it, I swear, every two seconds. They were like, so we studied this gene expression, and the model organism that we used to prove this was Arabidopsis thaliana. So if you guys are into plant biology at all, <laughs> you will see that plant a lot more. It is everywhere. It is legit everywhere. It's it's everywhere. It's it's so much. It's covered so much of the world that it's literally been in space now. It's probably been in space a bunch, but it's legit everywhere. It's nuts. <laughs> okay, moving on. They used uh, Arabidopsis thaliana as the model species. And uh, the goal of this was even though this plant isn't a food crop itself, uh, they can use, the researchers can use the data that they find from this plant and apply it to plants that are actually used as produce. And what this research team from MSU did is they selected specific seeds and enhanced them with certain amino acids uh, before sending those into space. They also had a few regular types of seeds as controls, but uh, why they modified and enriched these plants with specific amino acids is to fortify the seeds to see if they could create a more sustainable path for growing healthier plants in space. Because if you if you become an astronaut one day and you go into space, your body's going to be really stressed and you're going to be in an environment that your body is not used to and you're going to be lacking a lot of uh, potential nutrients. And a lot of space travel is getting all of the equipment you need into space, but also minimizing weight because it's expensive to send stuff into space. Super Super expensive. So if you can minimize the amount of weight you carry, but also get yourself into space and also have really uh, the best high, the best quality food you can for uh, the most efficient ways, that's really big. And this experiment done by MSU was actually one of four that was selected by NASA's uh, space biology program that they sent aboard Artemis One to help better study how space affects uh, terrestrial biology. Because we are a terrestrial planet here on Earth. We do not exist in the sole vacuum of space. So, what were some of the other projects that accompanied these um, enriched Arabidopsis thaliana seeds from MSU? There, were, there, was, um, there was also a yeast experiment that was done by uh, UC Boulder, which is... Uh, in Colorado, there was a fungus experiment led by the Naval Research Laboratory. It, 
I'm not sure if this is the Naval Research Laboratory in Maryland or Virginia. Not sure. I know they're all over the place. Navy has stuff everywhere. But go Army, be Navy. Go Army, be Navy. That's all I have to say. Anyways, and the last uh, study that they sent into space via the space biology program was an experiment with photosynthetic algae that was led by the Institute for Medical Research, uh, which is a nonprofit uh, research organization. So you had four studies going on in Artemis One. You had our star, the MSU study with plants, the algae, uh, the fungus, and the yeast. Because of course you want to be able to make food from a bunch of different sources. And wouldn't it be cool if you could grow bread yeast in space? Then you could call it like, uh, instead of calling it like, uh, what's it? What's the common brand? Like Fleischmann's Baker's yeast? You could call it Space Baker's yeast. It would be, a, it would have a cool name, you know? And instead of just having a cabbage that you eat, or like a strawberry, instead of just calling it, oh, your old typical earth strawberry, you could call it space strawberry version one. And it would be a fun time. <laughs> that would be a real fun time. And first side note, for any of you guys who are really into space and want to do plant research in space, uh, the head researcher, uh, Dr. Brandisi, this was actually her third laboratory experiment aboard a NASA mission. So, you guys want to get into NASA and plants? Talk to Dr. Brandisi. That'd be pretty cool. Okay. Uh, and some of the earlier miss missions that her team did were focusing on understanding how pl plants responded to stress, as there are many unique stresses that plants are subject to in space. And all these projects that have gone on so far in Artemis 1, they've all been really different, but their goals are related to someday allow for us to grow plants in space uh, to help with missions in the future. And there's no research data that's been published yet for this um, study. So we'll probably have to wait a little bit. Who knows? Maybe next year I'll do another, uh, another episode on Michigan State University and just provide an update. Because it would be really cool if we had the data for that already up. But yeah, uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed uh, this week's episode where I have talked about plants, plants, and plants galore, <laughs> switchgrass, and uh, Arabidopsis thaliania, and harlequin frogs, and of course, <laughs> the, f the most fun topic that I think I've talked about today, space. Totally unrelated. But hey, maybe I'll talk about astrobiology next week, because that's a really cool topic I think you guys would like. Anyways, I hope you have enjoyed uh, this week's episode of the living world and i will put up my episode description soon but i wish you all a good evening and i will see you next week <laughs>